friends, Chris Sauter, lead pastor at Neighborhood Church. We work hard at creating content every week that is life-giving and inspiring for people to live a full life. So we're inviting people who find this stream to be life-giving and encouraging to consider becoming a sustaining member at Neighborhood Church. That could be a one-time gift or to subscribe monthly. And you can do that at neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Thank you, friends, and enjoy the message. So this morning, I am going to be talking about youth pastors. What up? Anyone who is a youth pastor or who has served in student ministries, uh, you are brave and you are, you are courageous. Uh, when I was a student uh, in Carleton, I uh, went to a church that had the word tabernacle in it, if that tells you anything. Right? It, was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. And the youth group, the student ministries, it was called uh, Cross Current. Because you have to go against the current because every teenager is just trying to just get in the current and not get noticed. But all of a sudden you meet this guy named Jesus and you're like, no, you have to go against the current. And um, the, honestly, the reason that I am a pastor today, a big part is um, the youth pastor's name um, still is Phil, but we called him Pastor Phil. And uh, he had a huge, huge impact on me. And uh, I remember one message he gave it was on when Paul says, um, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And he, he talked about like our body literally is this temple. And it's where the Holy Spirit resides, where God lives. And um, then he's like, but do you want to put smoke in the temple of God? Do you want to put nicotine and tar in your lungs? That's going to defile the temple. And I remember listening and be like, that's right. We got to get pumped up around it. I'm a temple. Get this body templeized. We got to get clean. Got rid of. Get rid of all this. Come on, let's go, temple boys. Right, <laughs> temple boys. <laughs> right. That's that's how he thought about. It. Like I wanted. There was no no smoke in here, devil. Uh 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 uh. Right. And it wasn't until much later, when I got older, and I was learning and reading about um, the actual temple that we see in the Old Testament, um, and little did I know that the temple has smoke in it. All the time. That's what the temple was. It's filled with smoke. Right? They have, they, there's animals screaming. There's you know, like wheat all over the floor. There's blood everywhere. And they're burning literally like fat stuff all the time. There is, there is burning smoke. And it made me, it made me laugh. <laughs> like I'm so concerned about not getting that smoke in this temple where literally there's smoke in, in the temple. Um, and so it made me think of like Phil read the Bible and um, had this interpretation when he read that. And he, he deeply cared about us. I do believe that. And since he cared for us and he wanted us to be our best selves, to flourish as, um, as teenagers and saw, for whatever reason, smoking was a concern. Smoking was a way that could deter us from being fullness of ourself. And so he had this wisdom, read the Bible, had this way of seeing and understanding and interpretation and said, oh, okay, now I can use it here, which is what we do with the Bible, 
we, we read something and we interpret it and we see how it fits into our life and we might even see how it fits into culture or other people's lives that out of love we're saying, oh, so I'm going to make meaning off this scripture and I'm going to apply it here. That is what we all do. But there's this, there's this way, there's this in, even intimidation or even this threat of, um, of the Bible of when I talk with people and they're like, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm not smart enough, I'm not wise enough to get that one definition. A lot of people think the Bible is this like owner's manual that tells you if you do these like eight things, if this little light goes off, <laughs> right, you see some sort of trouble or worry in your life, well, then you have to do the, these eight things in a row and then boom, you're good. You're into, you're healed or you now have the perfect relationship or you get into heaven. And that's just not how the Bible works. And people use the word inerrant or infallible or they'll use words like, well, the Bible for thousands of years has says this, said this, and, and we hold this clear biblical value, this biblical truth. And really, like, I'm fine with that. But really, those are just words of saying, I believe, my interpretation is that the church has been doing this for thousands of years. I think the Bible clearly, clearly says. And the word, the, the, the idea of finding that one biblical truth has brought so much trauma, right? I talked with a good friend about spiritual trauma. People have used, I mean, think of how much violence has been people have done to their own bodies, to their own bodies. Uh, because someone said, well, the Bible clearly says this about this is what it means to be a woman and this is what it means to be a man. And the Bible clearly says this is how you're supposed to worship. I just talked with someone the other day about, um, uh, well, they, they said, can you give me some um, Bible verses about tithing? <laughs> and we had a good talk about like, so many people don't even engage in giving, don't engage in the biblical idea of tithing because they can't afford 10% of the income. And so they're like, well, I'm already, I'm already a bad Christian because I can't give 10% of my income, right? So I'm already losing, so I'm not going to give anything at all. Because someone said, this is what it means to be holy is to give X amount of money, right? Someone made that interpretation and then applied so much violence to ourselves in thought, so much pain of when we think, I have to get, just get that one Truth And what I believe to be true is that th there is infinite levels of knowing God. And what the Bible does, the, to me, the Bible is a book of wisdom. And it's shedding light on uh, of all the ways that I know about the divine and all the, all the unknowing I know about the divine. Imagine that if God is like this, this diamond, right? And it, it's, we're all looking at it, but we're all going to be looking at it from different parts around the room. And based on the light that's coming in based on what we understand of what diamonds to be, uh, based on our feelings or attitude, or if we watched community or not, that's going to, <laughs> it's going to shape how we view that diamond. What the Bible does is help just spin it a little bit more, right? And we might have a new, a different perspective, different understanding. And even though uh, the person to my left, left might have a different understanding, different view of what God is than me, we both can move towards this same God. And that's what interpretation is, right? Uh, I've had, I, I met um, someone who was a part of a team of, of pastors and th they wanted to like really dig down deep. They really wanted to get into the word on, um, about um, LGBTQ and the community and the Bible. And what does the Bible really say about it? And th they literally, they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take all our bias. We're going to put it aside. We're going to take all the things that we've thought or we've understood before this, we're going to lay it on the table and we're going to look at this objectively, completely, completely dis 
untethered from where we were before. Even though they've written multiple position papers and multiple sermons on what they believe um, is an abomination, right, is the word that they would use. And I was fascinated. I'm like, do you, like, you can just flip that switch? You can just turn off bias? Unconscious bias? You can just turn off what people have said is holy and you can just turn off all the things and awkward conversation. You can just put that aside. And the truth is, we, we, we can't, right? Every person, when we open up that Bible, you're already coming in with some um, ideas. You're already coming in influenced by your education or your religious upbringing. You're already being informed of how to make meaning of this story based on um, that you got bullied by that kid who said he was a Christian, right? You're already making meaning of when you open the Bible before you even open it up, right? And why? Because we're human. This is just what we do. And something that might blow your mind is the people who wrote the Bible had a way of, <laughs> of seeing. They had a way of understanding science and, and even God um, itself. Like, you, you take the Gospels, like, the, the, that was a Hellen, the Hellenistic um, time period. That deeply formed how the Gospel writers wrote and thought and um, interpreted things. Because that's what you do, right? That they lived in that time. That was a dominant way of thinking. So why wouldn't that influence how they thought or what they believed? And those who wrote the Bible in the Old Testament, same thing. So there was a certain context, and we have our own context. And so how we interpret the Bible matters. And it's really messy. And this is what I, this is what I love about our church. This is what I love about neighborhood, is that we, we're going to, like I said earlier, if we start at a place of being inclusive, right? Being inclusive is something so much bigger than just being an affirming church, right? Being inclusive means we can take different ways of moving towards the Bible. We can take different ways of, of talking about God, of, of using um, she as pronoun or he or they, right? We can come at it with different ideas that inform how we are to show up in the world, and I could say it all belongs, right? And then there's always someone like, oh, so we can marry four horses because, you know, I love my horses. I'm going to marry them. I have no, <laughs> I have no idea. Sarah's like, go for it. Live your best life. Right? No, here's, here, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, right, to me, if, when, when um, people try trapping Jesus about what's the most important law, how does Jesus respond? They're saying, well, you tell us exactly where the line is, and so then we'll follow it. And, then, and they're trying to get Jesus to pick one camp so then the, the, they can blame the other camp. And they're like, well, um, four horses. <laughs> um, so Jesus says, oh, yeah, sure. Why, why don't we just like love God with everything we have? Let's love people in the same way you love yourself. So to me, whatever we are interpreting from the Bible, if it leads towards loving the divine, if it leads towards love of self, and it leads towards the love of the other, to me, what's the downside? The, the damaging part is, uh, where I would disagree, is anyone who uses the Bible as a weapon. Anyone who uses the Bible where, um, where, it, where they begin, even having a conversation, even before meeting and seeing that face, they already say, you don't belong, you are an abomination, or you are, you are less than. And for a whole lot of reasons, churches do this. Uh, Well-meaning Christians take, read something in the Bible and say, well, you know, clearly this is why you don't belong, this is why you are in sin, or this is why whatever. And again, like I said earlier, churches and Christians have been using, <laughs> interpreting the Bible in a way that, um, 
meets their own power, that keeps their own patriarchy, that keeps their own privilege, right? Keeps the way that how they, who they want to marry and how they show up. And so I thought today something that could be, um, be <laughs> four horses, I'm so laughing there. So I thought it would be really good is that we're going to practice this. We're going to read a, 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 a passage of, um, in the Bible in Matthew 15. And if you would like to read along, and if you have a Bible, I would really encourage you to like look at it um, with me. We don't always do this. I always invite you to, but if it's around, you can grab it. And here's what, what we're going to practice, right? I think interpretation, interpreting the Bible really does, um, really does matter. And I, I, of course, I want everyone to read the Bible <laughs> a lot, but people are intimidated or people are discouraged or people are uh, traumatized by the Bible, by what other people have handed down or what have told them. And what I want is, even in practice today, is to be focused on what you feel, right? Like this passage we're going to read is very problematic and a lot of us can read right through it because we already determined who we think the Christ is. We've already determined who Jesus is. And so in that lens, we can read over something that Jesus says that might be like, mm, come again. And I want you to pay attention of what you feel. What words stand out to you? right? Like a really helpful question reading the Bible um, isn't just, is this true or not? Like, that's fine. I actually love talking about those things. But a better question that leads us to like a more expansive way of seeing the divine is, um, why do I feel this? Or why is that word there? Why, why that word? Why that, that passage? Why that way of, of talking? And that will lead you into more unknowing and, and more knowing. So if you have your Bible, open up to chapter 15, Matthew 15, um, and we're going to start in verse 21. So, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord! Son of David! My daughter's tormented by a demon! Right? I nailed the Canaanite woman, didn't I? Sarah's... I can't wait. Yeah, <laughs> right? Right? So the Canaanite woman, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she, she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. And even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. So, um, you don't, you mean you can write this down, but I want you to just be aware, what words stand out to you? Like, as you look at it or you heard it, what word, like, just pops up to you, like, right away? What, what feelings do you have around those words? Are they positive? Are they happy? Are they liberating? Are they confusing? Are they met with anger or frustration because there is a lot happening here so i'm going to give you several different ways that different um theologians and authors have thought about this and have talked about this all right and hopefully at the end we're going to have something for you that is like a positive meaningful um takeaway so uh the first is um jesus here clearly well what's happening is there's this there's this woman and she's like screaming at jesus to the point where the disciples like, we can't get anything done. She's not going away. She's yelling from wherever she is. So Jesus says, fine, come over here. And um, Jesus clearly calls her a dog, right? And that for me, and maybe for some of you who read that, they're like, mm, come again, Jesus, might be problematic, 
Calling someone a dog isn't usually associated with like warm fuzzies. Um, but again, how you think about Jesus matters. And if you already predetermined Jesus to be this, the, whatever it is, you're going to read this differently. There's some theologians I read, it made me uh, giggle, made me LOL, uh, where they're like, well, you know, Jesus, it wasn't the word there, dog, maybe it was a word like for puppies. And so it was actually, Jesus was doing that over a term of endearment. Jesus was doing like, no, little puppies. And they're like, oh, thank you. Yes, Lord, even the puppies can get the crumbs. And then her and Jesus like, yay, all together, right? That's, that's, that's one way of reading it. Uh, there is a, a scholar named N.T. Wright that I quote often. And the way he interprets this verse, this passage is uh, Jesus is, is coming to fulfill, right? The Israel people, the promise that God gave to Abraham through you and your descendants will be a light unto the nations, the hope for the world. And it's going to come through you, Abraham. It's going to come through the Hebrew, the Israeli people. And so Jesus has to come and fulfill that promise. Jesus has to be that promise. And once there's this resurrection at whatever point that's going to happen, then it's going to be this, this kingdom of God will be readily available for, for everyone. And so Jesus is trying to explain to this woman of someday that's going to happen, but it's not going to be today. And I actually agree with this, right? But that doesn't, why does Jesus use this word? How can Jesus use this, this derogatory term towards this woman? And how can we like make that fit? How does that work into our theology? How is that, how do we interpret that? Right? Love this. So, um, what is happening here, this, this is my interpretation, and this is actually Sarah Bessie's the one who um, um, talked about. She's an author. She has a, um, several books. Um, uh, there is a book she just released of, um, of prayers, a collection of prayers that is, is so good. Here's Sarah Bessie's um, way of imagining this could be, right? Again, this is just one way. Is that um, this woman, right, is exposing Jesus' bias. She is teaching Jesus of those words that you use, aren't okay, right? And she is holding, almost holding up a mirror to Jesus saying, is this how you really see us? Is this, do you think this is the way that you should be talking to us, right? And Jesus has this, this awakening, right? It, this is the first time, I think only time in Matthew that someone, uh, that Jesus loses the argument. She wins the argument. They go back and forth. Jesus calls her a dog and she takes a position, like she's on her knees and she affirms her position in this world. She goes, yes, I am in dogs. And even can't even the dogs get a place? How, how many people would have bailed? How many people would have like moved and ran away? This woman came to for, for business, right? Yet she persisted. And maybe for some of you that might be problematic. You're like, well, Jesus used derogatory words. Jesus used um, maybe even sexist words. Jesus used maybe even violent words. Like, but Jesus lived this perfect life. Jesus was without sin, which I do believe. But what does it mean to be perfect? And what does it mean for sin? Because that really matters, right? This is going to be so good. This is so good, right? It's called ecclesiology of how do you come into knowledge, right? How do we believe Jesus came into knowledge? Was it like um, that it descended from heaven? Like it just rained knowledge? And when uh, Jesus got baptized and the heavens opened up and the dove comes down and God says, this is my son who I'm well pleased, right? And um, like that dove came on and like inserted some like chip into Jesus or some mi a mystical, magical truth just all of a sudden came to Jesus' existence. And now Jesus is like, oh, now in this moment, I know everything. I know all things. I know all these truths, Right? And there's some people, their Christology, that's how they, they view it. 
But what if, what about like, instead of it coming down, what if it was coming up? Like, what if Jesus came into knowledge, came into um, seeing the world of being by other people informing him? Like, how did Jesus learn how to walk? He watched other people walk. How did Jesus learn how to talk? By listening to his friends. How did Jesus know what it means to be a, a young boy? By watching his other boy. How did Jesus learn table manners? How did Jesus learn about the Torah? How did Jesus know about the divine? Was it just, he just woke up one day and was like, oh yeah, of course, I am Jesus, I am the Christ. And, or did Jesus, he learned from different rabbis at the temple. He heard stories from his grandparents. He heard stories from his friends and his aunt, right? How did Jesus, think about this. How did Jesus um, become so predispositioned to be leaning towards marginalized people, towards the poor, towards the hungry? Is it God and God's mission is always for liberation and justice? A hundred percent. But think about this. Jesus grew up in a town called Nazareth. In um, John chapter two, um, they're, they're talking about, hey, have you heard about Jesus from Nazareth? And one guy goes, oh, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, 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 right? They make some sort of um, joke because in that town in Nazareth, and we do this today, you hear people where someone lives and you're like, ooh, like, <laughs> like you hear people going, you know, graduate from Carlton High School, you're like, they must be billionaires. They are clearly um, excelling in everything they do because that would be true. Same thing of, of Jesus. Jesus would have been around people in poverty. Jesus would have been around people who are hungry. Jesus learned stories from people who were marginalized. Jesus knew their names. He saw all the beautiful things they, they could bring to the world and all the way that the system and the empire already is bringing violence and harm and leaving them out. Jesus like knew their names. Jesus was taught by them, inspired by them, right? And that, I love that idea of, of, of Jesus being informed by culture, of Jesus learning about who God is and what it means to be human by the people around him. So like, I, and I actually believe in, in both, right? Of the ascending and the descending. So if that leads to this beautiful way of showing up in this world for Jesus coming into this knowledge, right? Then couldn't it also be said that what if just like, this is how pe the people that um, Jesus grew up with, the people that Jesus was around, what if this is just how they saw this people like this woman? What if they just used those words? It was just like, that's just what we do. Like, did you ever, like growing up in your family or in your circle of friends, you used a word or a phrase and maybe you got to like high school or you got to college and you just like brought it up, like just without even thinking like, oh yeah, yeah, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like the whole room stopped and like looked at you <laughs> and you're like, uh, well, what just happened? The energy changed and someone had to inform you. That's not how we talk about that. That's not how we show up. That's not, those are not words that we use. I was at a friend's house and, um, uh, and there we were having spaghetti and uh, my friend said, hey, can you pass me the sprinkle cheese? And I looked around the table in the room and I'm like, I think she's lost her mind. And she's like, sprinkle cheese. And I picked up the, the Parmesan cheese. <laughs> I'm like, you mean like, like Parmesan cheese, what like sane, healthy people call it. And we laughed and that's just what they've always called Parmesan cheese was sprinkled cheese, right? But someone had to inform her about what healthy people call it. In the same way, in the same way, Jesus here becomes the student. She says, like, says, oh yeah, yeah, I am a dog, Jesus. Is that, is that what you want to hear? Is this how, how it works? 
And why is this bad? How, how is this leading to the perfect life? How is this like less than like, well, Jesus couldn't do that. Jesus had to evolve and grow and pivot and shift in his knowledge, in his way of being, in his way of knowing since he was a little kid. Why couldn't he, right? Why couldn't he continue to learn? Why couldn't he continue to evolve? See, to me, this is the holiest thing you can do. If Jesus, right, like a lot of us, when we get confronted with racism or sexism or um, homophobia or whatever, right, something that we are, um, what, what do you call it, um, unconscious bias, right? When it gets exposed, if Jesus would have been like, yeah, that's exactly what's talking about, woman. That is exactly this is my place and this is your place. That to me would be evil. That would be clearly missing the mark. That would be sin. If Jesus did like what a lot of parents do when their kids expose something unhealthy in their life, <laughs> right? What do you do? You power up and say, no, I'm the parent. You go somewhere else and I'm smart all the time, right? If Jesus did that, if Jesus just stayed silent, I would say that's evil as well. Silence is violence, right? But what does Jesus do? I can imagine in this scripture of, of, of Jesus kind of like smiling, Jesus kind of like nodding his head, and he grants her the very thing that she wants. There is this shift in energy. There's this shift in, in, um, in what Jesus is doing. She was the teacher and Jesus was the student. And thank God. Because I can be a mess. And I can, I'm ignorant a lot of times. And my bias right, comes up a lot. And here, if Jesus is saying, I want you to live like me, Chris. I want you to live a Jesus Christ-looking life then right here I can point to and say, I too can pivot, I too can grow, I can do better when I am shown a better way, a higher way, a wider way of being. So I love this. So the way that we interpret the Bible, we might look at this and say, well, I think another way of interpreting is saying, well, I don't really understand what's going on, but the real interpretation I'll learn when I'm in heaven. It's like, no, Jesus used some derogatory words, derogatory terms. This woman held up a mirror and Jesus learned and was better for it and so is she. So, before we wrap up, I want to just a way of looking and interpreting about this woman as well. See, this woman had an idea of what was to come in the future. If you want to go do a little, a little study, if you want to like, uh, about the Bible, um, look at how people see Jesus and what they do. People, like, there's this, there's this urgency, there is this um, agency, when people see Jesus, they're willing to cross lines, cultural lines, they're willing to cross boundaries. They're willing to, there's like this, this urgency of they have to move towards Jesus. And what is it about the Christ that makes people move and operate and behave in ways uh, that just don't always make sense? Because this, this woman has a lot working against her. It's called intersectionality uh, of where things are inter intersecting, are, are touching. She is a woman, which at that culture was that you were... Um, not at the level of a man. You were less human because you're a woman. Um, she lived in a rural area, and some scholars believe like this would have created some economic um, disparities as well. She is a non-Jew. She's a Gentile. She's an outsider, right? That works against her in engaging all these, this, this rabbi and his students, his disciples, right? And also her daughter has a demon. She's not well, which means then she would be also unclean. So there's all these <laughs> There's all these reasons that put her somewhere else, but yet she shows up. She has this idea of someday in the future, there's going to be this kingdom that I heard Jesus talk about. There's going to be this way of existing, this life, this flourishing, right? And she's saying, like, if it's going to be in the future, like, my daughter might not make it to the future. So why not today? 
I sense there's freedom and life and healing in the future. I can see it happening, Jesus, but like, like why not now? If you do it later, why not now? Jesus does this with the centurion, all right? Another outsider, five, verse, five chapters before this, chapter 10. And he says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus looks at him and looks at the disciples and says, clearly this man has the, the most faith than anyone else in this area. It was an outsider who sensed something in the future was going to happen and says, but can we just do it now? Which gives me so, so much hope. Like, think about this. How many people uh, during like the, um, the civil rights movement how many people of faith knew that slavery was wrong, knew the Jim Crow era, knew um, uh, uh, what, what, um, when you separate um, schools, segregation was evil, right? You can even go before that of when people were going for, we shouldn't own slaves, this is evil. How many faith leaders could look at their Bible, read what Paul says, and it clearly says that slavery can be a good thing and slave owners should operate this way and slave slaves should operate this way. The Bible is very like pro-slavery, especially Old Testament, right? But they read their Bible and say, what if, what if we're reading this maybe not the most healthy way? What if we look at the person of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and interpret that and then put it in our context today? How many of them silently believed that this is evil, but sat on their hands and did nothing? How many people could see in the future there was liberation and there was going to be freedom and access to government programs and to communities and schools, all this, right? They could sense, they knew that they knew they knew it was going to happen, but yet they sat on their hands. Why? They're waiting for someone else to do it. They're waiting for the government to do it. They're waiting for other faith leaders to do it. Why? Because it was going to cost them something. It was going to bring violence to themselves. It's going to, people would leave their churches. It's, it was going to absolutely have this cost. And even though they could see it coming, they're saying, well, we have to wait till the, the other people do it, until those lines are crossed, until someone gives me permission, right? Like what we can learn from the Kenite woman is saying, blow that up. There was this prophetic voice that word, prophecy, prophetic, has been very hard for me because when I was younger, I saw it used in very violent ways. I saw it used in very manipulative ways. And so I've had to like put that word down for a long time and recently I've been picking back up. Prophecy, this prophetic word, is that this kingdom, this God, is doing something beautiful and there's going to be liberation and there's going to be justice and freedom and I can sense it. Instead of just waiting for it to happen, right? It was like, what can I be and participate in this agency, in this change now, right? And thank God there was other people and spiritual leaders and faith leaders who were willing to speak up, right? For liberation of black people, of liberation of eradicating slavery, of moving through the Jim Crow laws, all like someone who's saying, we, there's change that is coming and it's gonna start today. And it's gonna start with me. Like how many things do you see in your neighborhoods where you sense, hmm, I bet there, there, someone should do something about that, right? Those are like words of like, a lot of people saying, well, the school should be, or you know, the police should be, or our city council should be. Those, those are all words of saying, you see that there is an opportunity, you see that there's a problem, and you just want someone else to do the work. Like, I was taught, I was trained, uh, instead of asking kids, what do you wanna be when you grow up? Instead, ask them, um, um, when you get older, what problems do you wanna solve? Because when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up, there is no, there's no agency with that. You just all of a sudden arrive at that, and that's not how the world works. When you put it of what kind of problems do you want to solve, it gives them permission. It gives them uh, participation. It gives them, like, they get to be a part of this process, and they can be aware. It gives them permission to be able to see, yeah, what problems in the world am I passionate about? 
This is what I love about Neighborhood Church, and this is where I end. I love Neighborhood Church because we, I really believe that uh, the people in our community like want to be a part of the neighborhoods and they see that we can be a part of some, we can be a part of transformation. Like this woman, we see something's happening and we want to do something about it, right? I um, met with uh, someone just the other day and they're talking how they want to have a group of people in their living room and where they do some simple um, exercises, spiritual exercises, go through some practices and out of this like community, out of this way of knowing each other, go out and like, and I love this word, right? They will go and serve the poor, right? There's a time in my life people would say that. I'd be like, oh, brother, right? You're using this like jargon, this Christian jargon. But like I, I, I know this person and her heart and her, and she sees that there is people who are, uh, who are hitting obstacles that they don't hit themselves. And they want to do something about it. Instead of waiting for another nonprofit, instead of waiting for another church or waiting for another organization, they're like, what if we do that in the people in our neighborhood now? Love that. What if there was a group of people who saw in their neighborhood, people are driving half hour, 45 minutes to go get food, right? Because like we said, food scarcity is a real thing. What if a group of families got together and said, hey, why don't we take this garage and let's set up our own food shelf so people don't have to spend wear and tear on their vehicle. They don't have to spend gas. They don't have to spend the time. Instead, they can come here. And what if we like, I don't know, fed them and like learned their names and heard their stories and celebrated birthdays and like, just like, what if we could actually be a part of the little neighborhood? Maybe as a lawyer, you, you see an opportunity, maybe some other lawyers of going through some like immigration reform, immigration help of helping people become citizens. What if it's, <laughs> right? I say this all the time. What if like your prophetic insight is to use your tater tot hot dish? Again, I know I'm heavy on that. What if you use your table as a way for your friends for your kids' friends to come and eat because there's a place where they can come and laugh and be themselves. And there's someone who knows their name. There's a place where they, they can really just be safe. And I can tell you, there is lots of students. There's tons of students that don't have a place, another safe adult, if any safe adult, of where they can just eat with their mouth open, they can laugh, they can ask questions, they can process, and they can just exist. And that is some of the most holy things that you can do. Right? What, what is it that you see in your neighborhood that need, needs to get done? And this is, this is what I love about Neighborhood Church. Because we're a community that exists, that you can show up. There's a place for you to land. Because transformation is exhausting work. Transformation is absolutely tiring. Because it costs you something. To have a place where you can come and someone can see you. Someone can clink your glass. You can laugh. Maybe cry. Maybe pray for each other. Maybe sing like what Sarah's saying today. Sing some songs that, um, that point to this wonder and this mysticism of a good God. It's a place where someone can remind you the work that you're doing is sacred. The work that you're doing, that transformation that you're doing, it matters and it's needed and it's holy. And sometimes we just need to be seen. Sometimes we just need a place where someone else can come alongside us and say, what you do matters. Because there is this, there's this prophetic voice that's happening in you. And when you participate it, and you, you engage with it, it is, it, is, it is leading the freedom and the justice, but it's also tiring. And we, like Jesus, can evolve and grow as we do this work. So, let me, let me pray. So God, we love you. And I thank you through the inspiration and the model of, uh, of Jesus. There's this way of coming into knowledge of learning from our friends, learning from our grandparents' stories, learning from the wisdom of sacred scriptures, learning from laughing with, with friends around a table, 
but also learning when things get exposed in us. And so I, I pray that that um, bias in us would get exposed. Instead of fear of saying all the exact perfect things, instead of, uh, of being held in guilt by maybe some of the things we have said and just hiding from it, I pray, God, that it would be exposed and we'd be able to, to, to pivot and grow. We can hold each other accountable. We can inspire each other to continue to be the fullest person of ourselves, fullest version of ourselves. I pray you give us the wisdom to help other people to speak up when we see uh, bias, to speak up when we see sexism or racism. And I ask God that you would give us the, the courage and that prophetic wisdom to be able to identify what you're doing in the future and that you give us what we need to move towards that and to do it now. Because those people are worth it. Those issues are worth it. Our lives, our bodies, our mental health is also worth it. And we love you. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, everyone who hung on. This was an extra long message today, but I, I, I deeply believe in this. So I hope that you have a great rest of your weekend. And thank you for coming to Neighborhood Church.